Good afternoon. Uh, this is Jim Fallon, Director of Project Narrative at The Ohio State University. And I'd like to welcome you to the Project Narrative podcast. In each episode, a narrative theorist selects a short narrative to read and discuss with me or another host. Today, I'll be talking with Angus Fletcher, who has selected Tim O'Brien's short story, The Things They Carried, published in 1990, as part of his short story collection, also called The Things They Carried. Angus Fletcher is a core faculty member of Project Narrative, with joint appointments in the Department of English and in the Department of Theater, Film, and Media Arts at The Ohio State University. Angus trained in neuroscience, received his PhD from Yale in, uh, with a specialization in Shakespeare, and he works in Hollywood, Silicon Valley, the Chicago Boat School of Business, the U.S. Army Medical Corps, and U.S. Special Operations on projects ranging from artificial intelligence to trauma therapy to creativity training. His most recent books are Wonderworks for Simon & Schuster, 2021, A Field Guide for Creative Thinking for the U.S. Army, also 2021, and Story Thinking, forthcoming for Columbia University Press this year. So, Angus, uh, why did you choose the things they carried to read and discuss uh, for this podcast? Well, I chose this story because I found myself doing a lot of work with the Army Nursing Corps and the Army Medical Corps on trauma and um, therapy. And I discovered that this short story is a favorite of many veterans. They find it very therapeutic. They find it very powerful at helping them process a lot of their own experiences of conflict and struggle. And so naturally, I wanted to read it to understand it and come to you, the guru of rhetorical <laughs> narrative theory, so we could maybe kind of unlock some of the secrets and, and think a little bit about maybe some of the things that are going on in the brain um, yeah. and kind of track them back to some of the, the mechanics of the narrative. Okay, great. Yeah, I think that's a nice frame, right? So we'll we'll look at the story and we'll keep in mind this uh, effectiveness that it has for this particular audience. Uh, okay, um, well, you know, next step is for you to be to read, but uh, before we be you begin that reading, uh, we should let our listeners know that due to time constraints, you won't be reading the whole story. Instead, you'll read the first few pages, uh, summarize the middle, and then read the last few pages. Is there anything else you think our listeners need to know before you begin reading? Uh, well, um, this does depict war and violence, and there is also some bad language. So if you have uh, children listening to the uh, Narrative Theory podcast, you might like to cover their ears. Okay. Now, here's Angus Fletcher reading The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. First Lieutenant Jimmy Cross carried letters from a girl named Martha, a junior at Mount Sebastian College in New Jersey. They were not love letters, but Lieutenant Cross was hoping, so he kept them folded in plastic at the bottom of his rucksack. In the late afternoon, after a day's march, he would dig his foxhole, wash his hands under a canteen, unwrap the letters, hold them with the tips of his fingers, and spend the last hour of light pretending. He would imagine romantic camping trips into the White Mountains in New Hampshire. He would sometimes taste the envelope flaps, knowing her tongue had been there. More than anything, he wanted Martha to love him as he loved her. But the letters were mostly chatty, elusive on the matter of love. She was a virgin, he was almost sure. She was an English major at Mount Sebastian, and she wrote beautifully about her professors and roommates and midterm exams, about her respect for Chaucer and her great affection for Virginia Woolf. She often quoted lines of poetry. She never mentioned the war, except to say, Jimmy, take care of yourself. The letters weighed 10 ounces. They were signed, Love, Martha. But Lieutenant Cross understood that love was only a way of signing and did not mean what he sometimes pretended it meant. At dusk, he would carefully return the letters to his rucksack. Slowly, a bit distracted, he would get up and move among his men, checking the perimeter. And then at full dark, he would return to his hole and watch the night and wonder if Martha was a virgin. The things they carried were largely determined by necessity. Among the necessities, or near necessities, 
were P38 can openers, pocket knives, heat tabs, wristwatches, dog tags, mosquito repellent, chewing gum, candy, cigarettes, salt tablets, packets of Kool-Aid, lighters, matches, sewing kits, military payment certificates, sea rations, and two or three canteens of water. Together, these items weighed between 15 and 20 pounds, depending on a man's habits or rate of metabolism. Henry Dobbins, who was a big man, carried extra rations. He was especially fond of canned peaches in heavy syrup over pound cake. Dave Jensen, who practiced field hygiene, carried a toothbrush, dental floss, and several hotel-sized bars of soap he'd stolen on R&R in Sydney, Australia. Ted Lavender, who was scared, carried tranquilizers until he was shot in the head outside the village of Tanke in mid-April. By necessity, and because it was standard, standard operating procedure, they all carried steel helmets that weighed five pounds, including the liner and camouflage cover. They carried the standard fatigue jackets and trousers. Very few carried underwear. On their feet, they carried jungle boots, 2.1 pounds, and Dave Jensen carried three pairs of socks and a can of Dr. Scholl's foot powder as a precaution against trench foot. Until he was shot, Ted Lavender carried six or seven ounces of premium dope, which for him was a necessity. Mitchell Sanders, the RTO, carried condoms. Norman Bowker carried a diary. Rat Kylie carried comic books. Kiawa, a devout Baptist, carried an illustrated New Testament that had been presented to him by his father, who taught Sunday school in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. As a hedge against bad times, however, Kiawa also carried his grandmother's distrust of the white man, his grandfather's old hunting hatchet. Necessity dictated. Because the land was mined and booby-trapped, it was standard operating procedure for each man to carry a steel-centered, nylon-covered flak jacket, which weighed 6.7 pounds, but which on hot days seemed much heavier. Because he could die so quickly, each man carried at least one large compressed bandage, usually in the helmet band, for easy access. Because the nights were cold, and because the monsoons were wet, each carried a green plastic poncho that could be used as a raincoat or ground sheet or makeshift tent. With its quilted liner, the poncho weighed almost two pounds, but it was worth every ounce. In April, for instance, when Ted Lavender was shot, they used his poncho to wrap him up, then to carry him across the paddy, then to lift him into the chopper that took him away. They were called legs or grunts. To carry something was to hump it, as when Lieutenant Jimmy Cross humped his love for Martha up the hills and through the swamps. In its intransitive form, to hump meant to walk or to march, but it implied burdens far beyond the intransitive. Almost everyone humped photographs. In his wallet, Lieutenant Cross carried two photographs of Martha. The first was a coat of color snapshot, signed love, although he knew better. She stood against a brick wall. Her eyes were gray and neutral, her lips slightly open as she stared straight on at the camera. At night sometimes, Lieutenant Cross wondered who had taken the picture, because he knew she had boyfriends, because he loved her so much, and because he could see the shadow of the picture taker spreading out against the brick wall. The second photograph had been clipped from the 1968 Mount Sebastian yearbook. It was an action shot, women's volleyball, and Martha was bent horizontal to the floor, reaching, the palms of her hands in sharp focus, the tongue taut, the expression frank and competitive. There was no visible sweat. She wore white gym shorts. Her legs, he thought, were almost certainly the legs of a virgin, dry and without hair, the left knee cocked and carrying her entire weight, which was just over 100 pounds. Lieutenant Cross remembered touching that left knee. A dark theater, he remembered, and the movie was Bonnie and Clyde, and Martha wore a tweed skirt. And during the final scene, when he touched her knee, she turned and looked at him in a sad, sober way that made him pull his hand back. But he would always remember the feel of the tweed skirt and the knee beneath it and the sound of the gunfire that killed Bonnie and Clyde. How embarrassing it was, how slow and oppressive.
He remembered kissing her goodnight at the dorm door. Right then, he thought, he should have done something brave. He should have carried her up the stairs to her room and tied her to the bed and touched that left knee all night long. He should have risked it. Whenever he looked at the photographs, he thought of new things he should have done. What they carried was partly a function of rank, partly a field specialty. As a first lieutenant and platoon leader, Jimmy Cross carried a compass, maps, code books, binoculars, and a 45 caliber pistol that weighed 2.9 pounds fully loaded. He carried a strobe light and the responsibility for the lives of his men. As an RTO, Mitchell Sanders carried the PRC-25 radio, a killer, 26 pounds with his battery. As a medic, Rat Kiley carried a canvas satchel filled with morphine and plasma and malaria tablets and surgical tape and comic books and all the things a medic must carry, including M&Ms for especially bad wounds, for a total weight of nearly 20 pounds. As a big man, therefore a machine gunner, Henry Dobbins carried the M60, which weighed 23 pounds unloaded, but which was almost always loaded. In addition, Dobbins carried between 10 and 15 pounds of ammunition, draped in belts across his chest and shoulders. As PFCs, or Spec 4s, most of them were common grunts and carried the standard M16 gas-operated assault rifle. The weapon weighed 7.5 pounds unloaded, 8.2 pounds, with its full 20-round magazine. Depending on numerous factors, such as topography and psychology, the rifleman carried anywhere from 12 to 20 magazines, usually in cloth bandoliers, adding on another 8.4 pounds at minimum, 14 pounds at maximum. When it was available, they also carried M16 maintenance gear, rods and steel brushes and swabs and tubes of LSA oil, all of which weighed about a pound. Among the grunts, some carried the M79 grenade launcher, 5.9 pounds unloaded, a reasonably light weapon, except for the ammunition, which was heavy. A single round weighed 10 ounces. The typical load was 25 rounds. But Ted Lavender, who was scared, carried 34 rounds when he was shot and killed outside Tan K. And he went down under an exceptional burden, more than 20 pounds of ammunition, plus the flak jacket and helmet and rations and water and toilet paper and tranquilizers and all the rest, plus the unweighed fear. He was dead weight. There was no twitching or flopping. Kiawa, who saw it happen, said it was like watching, watching a rock fall or a big sandbag or something. Just boom, then down. Not like the movies, where the dead guy rolls around and does fancy spins and goes ass over tea kettle. Not like that, Kiawa said. The poor bastard just flat fuck fell. Boom. Down. Nothing else. It was a bright morning in mid-April. Lieutenant Cross felt the pain. He blamed himself. They stripped off Lavender's canteens and ammo, all the heavy things. And Rat Kiley said the obvious. The guy's dead. And Mitchell Sanders used his radio to report one U.S. killed in action and to request a chopper. Then they wrapped Lavender in his poncho. They carried him out to a dry paddy, established security, and sat smoking the dead man's dope until the chopper came. Lieutenant Cross kept to himself. He pictured Martha's smooth young face, thinking he loved her more than anything, more than his men. And now Ted Lavender was dead because he loved her so much and could not stop thinking about her. When the dust-off arrived, they carried Lavender aboard. Afterward, they burned Tonke. They marched until dusk, then dug their holes. And that night, Kiawa kept explaining how you had to be there, how fast it was, how the poor guy just dropped like so much concrete. Boom down, he said, like cement. So here the story goes on to tell about more of the things they carried, including all they could bear and then some. It relates Jimmy Cross's desires and anxieties about Martha and how his mind drifted to imagining how she was walking barefoot on a New Jersey beach where she found a pebble that he now carried for good luck, forgetting to tell his men to keep their eyes open and maintain battle order. And it tells the story of how Ted Lavender died on a hot day when the platoon discovered an enemy tunnel and Kiawa had a premonition and a soldier picked a bad lot and was sent in to clear the tunnel. 
and how Jimmy Cross got distracted thinking about Martha while the tunnel was being cleared. But Jimmy Cross's wandering mind didn't matter because the soldier clearing the tunnel got out alive. And then suddenly, when everyone was relaxing outside the tunnel, Ted Lavender got shot on his way back from popping a tranquilizer and peeing in the trees, leaving the rest of the platoon to debate whether there was a moral to what had just happened. And then the story ends. On the morning after Ted Lavender died, First Lieutenant Jimmy Cross crouched at the bottom of his foxhole and burned Martha's letters. Then he burned the two photographs. There was a steady rain falling, which made it difficult, but he used heat tabs and sterno to build a small fire, screening it with his body, holding the photographs over the tight blue flame with the tips of his fingers. He realized it was only a gesture. Stupid, he thought. Sentimental, too but mostly just stupid. Lavender was dead. You couldn't burn the blame. Besides, the letters were in his head. And even now, without photographs, Lieutenant Cross could see Martha playing volleyball in her white gym shorts and yellow t-shirt. He could see her moving in the rain. When the fire died out, Lieutenant Cross pulled his poncho over his shoulders and ate breakfast from a can. There was no great mystery, he decided. In those burned letters, Martha had never mentioned the war, except to say, Jimmy, take care of yourself. She wasn't involved. She signed the letters love, but it wasn't love. And all the fine lines and technicalities did not matter. Virginity was no longer an issue. He hated her. Yes, he did. He hated her. Love, too. But it was a hard, hating kind of love. The morning came up wet and blurry. Everything seemed part of everything else. The fog and Martha and the deepening rain. He was a soldier, after all. Half-smiling, Lieutenant Jimmy Cross took out his maps. He shook his head hard, as if to clear it, then bent forward and began planning the day's march. In ten minutes, or maybe twenty, he would rouse the men, and they would pack up and head west, where the maps showed the country to be green and inviting. They would do what they had always done. The rain might add some weight, but otherwise... It would be one more day layered upon all the other days. He was realistic about it. There was that new hardness to his stomach. He loved her, but he hated her. No more fantasies, he told himself. Henceforth, when he thought about Martha, it would be only to think that she belonged elsewhere. He would shut down the daydreams. This was not Mount Sebastian. It was another world where there were no pretty poems or midterm exams a place where men died because of carelessness and gross stupidity. Kiawa was right. Boom down, and you were dead. Never partly dead. Briefly, in the rain, Lieutenant Cross saw Martha's gray eyes gazing back at him. He understood. It was very sad, he thought. The things men carried inside. The things men did or felt they had to do. He almost nodded at her, but didn't. Instead, he went back to his maps. He was now determined to perform his duties firmly and without negligence. It wouldn't help Lavender. He knew that. But from from this point on, he would comport himself as an officer. He would dispose of his good luck pebble, swallow it maybe, or use Lee Strunk's slingshot, or just drop it along the trail. On the march, he would impose strict field discipline. He would be careful to send out flank security, to prevent straggling or bunching up, to keep his troops moving at the proper pace and at the proper interval. He would insist on clean weapons. He would confiscate the remainder of Lavender's dope. Later in the day, perhaps, he would call the men together and speak to them plainly. He would accept the blame for what had happened to Ted Lavender. He would be a man about it. He would look them in the eyes, keeping his chin level and he would issue the new standard operating procedures in a calm, impersonal tone of voice, a lieutenant's voice, leaving no room for argument or discussion. Commencing immediately, he'd tell them, they would no longer abandon equipment along the route of the march. They would police up their acts. They would get their shit together and keep it together and maintain it neatly and in good working order. He would not tolerate laxity. He would show strength, distancing himself. Among the men, they would be grumbling, of course, and maybe worse, because their days would seem longer and their loads heavier. 
But Lieutenant Jimmy Cross reminded himself that his obligation was not to be loved, but to lead. He would dispense with love. It was not now a factor. And if anyone quarreled or complained, he would simply tighten his lips and arrange his shoulders in the correct command posture. He might give a curt little nod, or he might not. He might just shrug and say, carry on. Then they would saddle up and form into a column and move out toward the villages west of Tonkay. Okay, Angus, uh, that's great. Um, so maybe we could start with uh, just some general uh, thoughts on why this story has the kind of effect that you saw it have on uh, those with military experience. Yeah, so, you know, one of the things that fascinates me about this story is how it has this outside-inside relationship to Jimmy Cross's experience. And he's the focal point of the emotion of the story. And what he carries with him out of the story is a sense of grief, of shame, of survivor's guilt, of being responsible for this terrible act happening. Um, and he, he also does this, yes, all that, right? But then he, he also carries out this resolve, right, to be different, to, you know, no more daydreams, etc., right? And to, you know, adopt the correct command posture and so on. How do you see those two things relating in our, you know, those two re- responses and cross, you know, multiple responses, but sort of we could divide them a little bit in, into, the, you know, the grief on the one hand and, the, you know, the taking responsibility and then this, okay, I'm going to be even more of a, a soldier. So this is the extraordinary thing about the narrative structure of the story is that when Jimmy Cross says those things at the end of the story, when he says, I'm going to be a different person, if we had spent the entire story inside Jimmy Cross and we were completely aligned with him, we would simply say in that moment, oh, this is a change of heart. This person has completely reorientated. He's become a new person. And, you know, we have this kind of, you know, transition. But because the story establishes this inside-outside relationship to Jimmy – I'm not sure how close we are to him in those final moments. I mean, do we really completely believe him or do we maintain a sense of of ironic distance from Mm -hmm. what he's saying in those and and a kind of questioning? And I think that it's the opening up of that space which makes this moment so therapeutic because it's not about a simple kind of change of perspective. It's about us gaining a sense of a wider perspective on someone coping with tragedy and struggling with tragedy and trying to go through tragedy and their own sense of striving against it, but also we can kind of feel a certain sense of, of, of futility or difficulty or strain in yeah, that. Yeah, good. And so maybe we could talk a little bit about how the outside sort of adds to that in terms of the reader's perspective on it, right? So we have this inside thing, but we also have this outside thing which has consequences for the way in which we respond to the inside thing, right? So maybe you could talk a little bit more about how the outside thing, uh, you know, has its effects. Yeah. So, I mean, so one of the one of the things that I often think through when I when I read this story is I think, well, the original veterans literature was Greek tragedy. Greek tragedy was Mm -hmm. written by veterans, um, often written about wars and largely performed for veterans. And it's now staged today and has a similar therapeutic effect or has been shown to have this therapeutic effect for, for veterans. And. And we know psychologically one of the reasons for that is because it allows for these moments where we feel like we have experienced what the the sufferer in the story, so Oedipus, Mm -hmm. for example, is going through. We feel like we have experienced that before him because of the way the story is told. And so when he's undergoing his terrible moment of pain in the story, we feel like we can actually reach out and help him. And these Greek tragedies frequently have moments where the character in pain turns to the chorus and asks for help uh-huh. and receives help and then thanks the chorus and by extension thanks us. And we know that when someone who is suffering asks you for help and you feel like you can help them, that builds something known as self-efficacy in the brain. It increases your ability to heal yourself from trauma. And that distance is the same effect that is being generated here through the narrative where we don't feel as though we're inside Jimmy Cross all the way through. We feel like we go inside him and we feel his experience, but we also feel a distance from it. We feel like we can see things that he doesn't see. And that allows us the space to feel like we can maybe help him and assist him 
um, and in doing so, convince ourselves that we can lift someone else up and therefore lift ourselves up. Okay. All right. Great. So, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, in the first part of the story that you read with, with uh, you know, the sort of recitation of all the things they carried, um, we sort of, I think O'Brien is kind of setting up uh, this interesting kind of inside-outside thing, right? So one of the threads in the story is uh, all the things they carried. And, and in the middle that you just summarized, right, we get even more of the things they carried. Um, and then we go back to Jimmy and, and, you know, kind of we end with him. And then the other, I think, thread that he's working with is the death of Ted Lavender, Right, and that's that gets narrated sort of multiple times. Right, we get it from the beginning, then we come back to it, and you know, Kiowa has to tell about it, and you know, Jimmy keeps thinking about it, and so on. So, you know, are, are there you have thoughts about sort of the three threads and and how they relate, and how that might have a, you know effects on an audience? Sure. Well, well, again, the fact that the death is is narrated multiple times, this is a classic thing you get from Greek tragedy where you have the prophecy Uh and you know it's going to happen. And then you constantly have the prophecy reiterated through. And so it's this way of freezing a moment in time um, and, and, and then kind of kind of recursively going back, 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 back over it again. Then, of course, you have this fascinating focalization on the things that they carry, which are these moments of compact storytelling where we feel so much is revealed about these men's interiority through so little. And you just get a sense of their anxieties and their hopes and, and all these very, very delicate things through these tiny flashes, these tiny revelations. Yeah, and it's a sort of an interesting set of things, right? I mean, we have sort of military equipment, standard kind of stuff, right? And then we have things, I think, that sort of individualize them, right? So, so you know, the peaches and heavy syrup, right, for example. Um, you know, and then we get the sort of intangible things, right? Um, there's a sentence uh, in the middle... Um, that you you know you didn't have time to read that that is really seems to me kind of uh, epitomizes the way in which uh, this sort of third category of the intangibles um, you know works. So the, the the sentence is they carried all they could bear and then some, including a silent awe for the terrible power of the things they carried. Right. So this. The, the awe itself becomes something else that they're carrying, right? And, and then sort of the, the piling on of it, um, the kind of meta, meta carrying. Uh. Yeah, and how that kind of, again, reveals to us that um, the things that they are carrying are not things in, in the sense of inert objects. The things that they are carrying, we would call them in narrative actions or causes and effects, you know, things that, 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 that generate stories in themselves and commentaries on stories and ways of thinking about stories. And, you know, one of the things that, that, that also just deeply fascinates me about this narrator and its focus on, you know, so this narrator has this ability to go right into the pockets of all these characters and see everything and then go right into the hearts of these characters and see everything. And so... One of the temptations is to say, well, this is a, a, a neutral, omniscient narrator. This is a narrator who sees everything and in a kind of unbiased way reveals all that has occurred. But it's a very focalized narrator. It's, it's actually focused on very specific things. And so one of, I think, the most brilliant senses in the piece, one of the ones I read, is just this sentence, afterward they burned Tan K. Yes. It, how many people died? How many people die in that sentence? You have no idea. How many lives are changed in that sentence? You have no idea. And, and that is a sentence which sort of tells you everything about where the focus of the narrator is and where the focus of the narrator isn't. Because it's telling you at the same time as I'm telling you all these stories about these lives, I'm also not telling you all these stories about all these other lives. Right. And so it's a particular kind. And this is, again, very much like Greek tragedy because you have a chorus on stage in Greek tragedy which is many voices, just like the many voices here, you know, all the different... And yet, it's also a deeply subjective and biased voice. And the more you focus on a particular Greek course, the more you realize that even though it purports to have wisdom and be telling yeah. you everything and know the gods and will tell you about Zeus and all these kinds of things, 
it's actually very, very micro-focused on its own suffering, its own concerns, its own sense of problems, and it completely ignores everything else. And I think that that just very delicate, very brilliant narrative touch, um, it's just one of many examples of yeah, how... Yeah, no, I, I, that stands out for me too. And I think it, it's, it's sort of that juxtaposition, right? Uh, this, this comes right after the sort of elaborate uh, account of Ted Lavender's death, right? So we have the single American soldier dying, and then what's the response? We burn Tonkay, right? So there's a way in which I think, you know, O'Brien, by juxtaposing that, is sort of critiquing, uh, you know, the, the narrator in some sense, of the, you know, the, the um, selective attention or, uh, of, of, of the narrator, right? And, and then to some degree... You know, just using those few words really to say, "Hey, there's a bigger, there's a bigger story here." Yeah, and this to me is over and over again the technique of the narrative is to make you feel connected to a particular perspective, and then giving you that ironic moment of break. Yeah, I mean, I feel a lot of the times that I actually connect quite closely to Lieutenant Cross, and then his obsession with Martha's virginity, and you know, his determination to turn her into a symbol. And then this whole kind of thing at the end where he actually seems to blame her for the death of Ted Lavender. You know, he, yeah. he, he's like, oh, you know, she's actually, she's the problem here, you know. I hate she, her. Yes, yeah, I, okay. I love her. You know, and then you start having these moments of, of, of you, you break away from his perspective and you move from feeling empathy with him to actually feeling this ironic distance. And, and the same feeling holds with our relationship to the narrator. And it's constantly that feeling of being close to a perspective and then being pulled out of it. And that, again, is that sort of empowering sense of perspective that tragedy can give you, where you can feel both kind of the closeness of an individual yeah. heart and the kind of suffering and the fears and the hopes and anxieties, and then pull out of it and see the broader perspective. And to me, it doesn't make me judge the perspective that I'm in. I mean, because I, I realize that my own perspective is limited, and I'm, mm. I have similar blindnesses, and people are dying across this planet right now, and I'm not acknowledging that in this podcast, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm focalized on my own concerns right. and so on and so mm. forth, you know? But nevertheless, that moment of breaking makes you aware that there is a possibility outside of that. And it's that sense of something bigger than yourself, a larger narrative beyond even the narrator it's his, himself, uh -huh. you know, yeah. it does give you a sense of hope. And every time you detect it, I mean, this is the kind of core thing about even tragic irony, is it makes you feel a sense of there is something bigger than me. And therefore, all is not lost in my own futility. And, and that, for me, is, is definitely one of those moments. At the same time as I'm horrified at Tan K, I also feel, you know what? Someone noticed that. Uh, you right, know, it didn't right. fall out completely. Yeah, right, right. And I think that's, it's worth, you know, sort of then distinguishing O'Brien, uh, you know, as the orchestrator of all this from the narrator, right? Who, who, exactly. Who can go in and out and, and so on, right? Um, yeah, and that, and that in and out thing, maybe there's a little bit more to say about... Um, the narrative perspective in the sense of um, when it's out and it's doing the lists, um, yes, it's selective and so on, but it's also kind of distant, right? I mean, it's it's the things that they carried, uh, not, you know, um, and and it's and it's reporting, right? You know, this this soldier had these things, right? And and. And that also, I think, you know, that's an interesting choice on uh, O'Brien's part to have that and then the focaliz internal focalization uh, with Jimmy. Um, what sort of effects do you feel like that that has sort of over the course of the story? Yeah, well, that's a brilliant point. Well, so, of course, what you're saying is it's the things that they carried and other things that we carried. Why isn't the things that we carried? Yeah. And if you were to say the things that we carried, that would create a different relationship between us and the story. We would feel part of the platoon. Okay. We would feel closer yeah. to the platoon. Yeah. We would feel yeah. more in the platoon. But instead, by saying the things they carried, it does create a sense of distance from the platoon. But it does also, interestingly, tighten our relationship to the narrator. Because we kind of join the narrator in looking at yes. the them, okay. you know? Right. And so there's mm -hmm. this interesting way in which the space opens up, but it's actually also a space closes at the same time. And again, that sense of lift and distance and being slightly hoisted above so that you're never kind of completely in it. That is the experience that uh, I didn't get a chance to read this passage, but in the middle of the story, they talk about how they want to be taken home on a helicopter. Mm -hmm. 
and you know how for them you know basically um, they're willing even to um, shoot themselves in the foot to kind of self harm, so they can have this experience of flying above and just kind of looking down at everything below them as they kind of disappear up. And it's that sense of a skyhook. I mean, that's kind of one yeah. of the things you know, the Greeks would call irony. But just being lifted up. Um, and the narrative just gives you that again and again and again and again. And, and part of the effect, I think, when you were talking about the – when these lists have this almost like machine-like – I mean, they're always telling you how much everything weighs all right. the time. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, as I was reading this, I was like, do we really need to know that this is 2.9 pounds and this is 2.1 yeah. pounds yeah. and this is 10 pounds? But – What's going on there is this sense of the, you know, incredible specificity of the thing, you know, the incredible particularity yeah. of the thing. And yet, at the same time, for most readers, our sense of alienation from it. It's like, what is a PRC-25, you know, unless yeah. you've really gone through Vietnam history, you uh -huh. have no idea what that is, you know. Yeah. And so you're constantly being confronted with things that are very present, very real, very in the world, but also quite distant from you. Right. And that also creates this kind of interesting space because you start to realize, you know, that even though you want to feel empathy for these young men, you actually don't know a lot about their experience. You know, there, there yeah, is actually right. a distance between you and them, right. you know, and you feel right. conscious of that. And I think that helps kind of ward off maybe some of our tendency to kind of judge the characters in, in, in a kind of an aggressive sense, uh -huh. you know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah, yeah, good, good. I, I think another wrinkle there is the, um, you know, the they as this group of men and the kind of codes of masculinity. And, and I think, you know, that's relevant to the ending, right? When uh, Jimmy Cross, uh, you know, goes into the correct command posture and so on. But, but also there's that part in the middle um, in which, uh, you know, the narrator tells us about... Um, you know, one of the things they carry is the fear of embarrassing themselves, right? And that, that they would die, they would rather die, actually die, than sort of embarrass themselves in front of each other, right? And so there is this very strong, I think, um, you know, represent, representation of this they um, sort of trying to live up to some codes of masculinity. Yeah. And you and you feel the way in which that traps them. Yeah. I mean what's okay. what's interesting about this story is is how trapped so many of the characters feel on so many levels. You know, they just do not have the autonomy that they want to make decisions. And so even though they're out there in the field apparently being able to choose the things that they carry. You know, I mean that's one of the kind of tiny areas where they do actually have yeah. some autonomy. You know, what what you know this what, what do they do with this extra kind of space? And and that's actually what becomes their individuality and their particularity right. and their subjectivity is that tiny choice they're allowed to make. Am I going to carry, you know, a couple of extra, um, you know, um, sort of ammo mags with me? Yeah, or, or, or canned peaches. Right, or, or canned right. peaches, or, you know, that, that yeah. tiny. But then in the big domain of things, they're in a war. They yeah. can't control the war. They're trapped in these codes of masculinity, which basically, you know, through fear, imprison them into not saying what every one of them wants to say, which is, why are we going on this ridiculous march? Yeah. Why are we doing these things, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then also traps them with, with guilt and shame. And it's clear that, that um, most, if not all, the characters in the story are just simply not psychologically equipped mm. to be in this situation. Yeah, good. And then that, I think that, that, that sort of takes us back to Jimmy Cross in a way, in, in the way, particularly his judgment of himself as being responsible for Ted Lavender's death, right? And when you summarize it in the middle, I think, you know, you rightly pointed out, well, you know, the details don't really support that, right? So, you know, how do you think O'Brien is kind of trying to position his audience in relationship to Jimmy's you know, taking on this guilt, uh, this responsibility for Ted Lavender's death? Well, I think, first of all, he's trying to show us that the guilt is authentic. Mm -hmm. And for the same reason that the masculinity you're talking about is there. I mean, this is something that Cross feels because it has been drilled into him. He is the officer. He is in charge. Yeah. And the story repeatedly reminds us on multiple occasions that this is the job of an officer and that Jimmy Cross is not doing the things that he's supposed to be doing as an officer. You know, he's not maintaining, you know, uh, uh, discipline and, and distance and all these kinds of things long before there's the shooting. And, you know, there's even that moment where Kiawa has this premonition that something bad is going to yeah. happen. And even that, you know, I mean, Jimmy Cross is kind of off, you know, in his... 
So, you know, we understand why Jimmy feels this way because he's part of a narrative, he's part of a culture that's constantly telling him that he is responsible, yeah, yeah. that this is his fault. Yeah. Um, but in the same way that that narrative is not fully reliable, in the same way that it's focused on certain things but not on other things, you know, it's focused on one group of people but yeah. not on Tanke, it's not focused on the fact that what can you do in war? Yeah. How much can anyone control in war? Yeah. Is it any yeah. individual soldier's fault that someone else dies yeah. in yeah. war? Right. Or is that the, the fault of much larger forces? Yeah, you know, yeah. And, then, any- yeah and I think in that, in that particular case, right, because as you say in the summary, you know, they do the, the exploration of the tunnel, and that's really where the, the focus of, uh, you know, danger seems to be, right? And and they go through the tunnel, and, okay, it's all clear, basically, and then and then well, so, they get shot. So here's something, I'll, I'll throw this out at you. Tell me if you agree with this or not. Yeah. It's clear from the way that the narrative focalizes that it, it thinks that that's the source of the danger yeah. and that it makes us want to think that that's the source of the danger. Yeah. So it's a bit like a horror movie. Yeah. When a horror movie starts yeah, yeah. doing a slow close-up on a door and everything, you know, and then it turns out there's nothing there, and then you get hit from the yeah, salt, yeah, right, you know? Right, right, and yeah. so, so the narrative is conditioning you to think, okay, this is the problem. But, of course, this is the thing about war in general is yeah. it's a volatile, chaotic space, and, and, and no one understands it. Like, no one could possibly understand where to look or where the right place is to focus or what the standard operating procedures are. And so, you know, on the one hand, the story— Yes, right, right, right. But I, I, but I think if we, if we think about that, again, in relationship to the specific issue of is Jimmy Cross right to sort of take on— responsibility for Lavender's death, right? Then I think that supports the idea that, well, no. No. I mean, no. but yet he can't, he can't not take it on because of the ideology of what it means yes. to be a lieutenant yes. and what it means to be a man yes. in the war and all yes. that. Yes, yeah. and I would also say, and you can might dis- disagree with me on this, but I would say that we come out of the story both thinking that he is to blame and that he is not to blame. It's okay. very hard for us not to emotionally blame him because the story keeps blaming him and because we see him acting in these ways, even at the same time as we're able to get an ironic distance from that. Yeah, I guess I would say, I would say the story doesn't blame him. The story shows him continually blaming himself, but is also trying to show the, um, the way in which Ted Lavender died because he's a soldier in a war. Right. And, 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 and that Jimmy Cross's focus on himself, right, is similar to what happens in the, at the story level when we're focusing on the they and then we they burned Tan K, right? I mean, in, in a single sentence, right? So I think that that gap, I see the gap. We're agreeing, I think. There. Okay. I think we're agreeing, but what I'm yeah. sort of saying is I might be talking sloppily. I mean, you're talking about the kind of narrative in the kind of grand sense in terms of the author. Yeah. And I'm talking about it in terms of what I would consider the kind of focalizing perspective that's kind of tricking us into seeing certain things. Okay. So yeah. I would say the focalizing perspective, its version of the story is it had reminded us on several occasions that uh, Cross was supposed to be paying attention when he wasn't. Yeah. You know? And then all of a sudden we have a premonition. And Ted Lavender goes off and takes some tranquilizers and pees in the bushes. Right. Is that proper military discipline? Should you be taking tranquilizers <laughs> and peeing in the bushes? Don't you think that Cross should have intervened? I mean, this is what the Norwegian story says. Now, I agree with you, you know, yeah, that, that, yeah. that if Ted Lavender didn't die at this moment, someone else would have died at another moment. And, and you know, and, yeah. and you can maintain rigid military discipline and someone's always going to die, you know. And so yeah, I completely yeah. agree with you. But I still think the story... So another way of saying this is, as humans... Just psychologically, when something bad happens, we want to blame something for that. Yes, yes. It, it's okay. almost impossible for us not to blame. And that's why you see us blaming victims and doing other mm-hmm. things which are completely wrong, mm-hmm. you know, materially, but psychologically feel right to us. Well, someone has to be to blame for this situation. And that's another feature of narrative. In narrative, there always has to be a cause for an effect. In a narrative, there can't, something just can't happen without a cause because that's not a narrative. You know, so we're always seeking, well, what's the cause of this? And something like war isn't really a cause. Because it's too disparate and random and chaotic. It's, 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 it's a kind of not cause, yeah. um, except in a you know, logical or more abstract sense. But emotionally, it's very hard, whereas it's very easy to say, well, what caused this? You know, I'm mm-hmm. going to focalize in this way. So I don't think we're disagreeing. I'm just saying that I personally, and one of the reasons I think maybe this is therapeutic, is because you can come out of the story with this tension in yourself that you then have to process and work through 
after the story is over. Okay. And in the process of working through and processing that tension and gaining distance from it, you realize all the things that you're saying, but you have to work to get there. Uh-huh. You don't get there automatically. Like, I, yeah. don't, I didn't stop the story and think, oh, Jimmy Cross wasn't to blame. I stopped the story and thought... Jimmy Cross is deluded, you uh-huh. know, he's not actually going to change. Yeah. And, he, and, 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 and then, then on top of that, I think, well, he probably should change, you know, uh-huh. and those are the uh-huh. two thoughts that I have, you know. Uh-huh. And then over time, I start to realize, well, he probably isn't going to change, but maybe changing doesn't matter because uh-huh. this wasn't really his fault. But it takes me time to get there. Right. And another way of saying this is that grief and trauma are more about processing emotionally uh-huh. than they are having a single intellectual epiphany. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's definitely, yeah. And I think I the think story so. helps with that processing. Right, right, um, right, right. And so I think, yeah, if we read the ending as a, as a way of processing, or this is one stage yes, that he's at, and exactly. it's not necessarily exactly. you know, yes. the final. Yes, yeah. and we're in the same stage, I it's think. Not, yeah. It's not epiphany in the way that the sort of a, no, no. Know, a modernist short story might, might go and then say, no, okay, well, you've got no. there, right? It, right. It's, 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 if anything, it's a false epiphany. Yes. I mean, yeah. it's literally, I, I hate to keep comparing this to Oedipus, but I mean, you know, I mean, at the end of Oedipus, he gouges out his eyes, you know, yeah. and the chorus says, what a bizarre thing to do. Yeah. Why did you gouge out your eyes? I mean, if you felt really bad, you should have killed yourself. And if you didn't feel bad, you shouldn't have done anything. Like, what are you doing? You know? And so it's, it's, it's in their minds, the, the essence of a false epiphany. It's like he thinks yeah. he's realized, yeah. but actually he somehow kind of mixed it up, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's and part of the tragedy. Yeah, yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, yeah, and I think yeah. we feel the same way about Jimmy Cross. He's trying and he's wrestling and he's in pain and he realizes the need to do something, but he doesn't know what to do. Yeah. And we see that and feel that, again, because of this wonderful narrative technique of really having these multiple layers where we're in the character, but then we're in the narrator that's focalizing, and then we're in the author, you know what I mean? Yeah, and, right. and, and I think the process ultimately of reading a story is helped by the remaining stories in the collection because yeah. those stories then help us get closer and closer to the author, oh, oh, Brian, right. you know, to O'Brien. And the yeah. more we get to O'Brien, the more we can process and process and process and process. But this story, I think, leads off the, connect, the collection to give us that sense of unresolution, of feelings that we haven't been able to process, yeah. And that divided sense of blame, and blame and guilt are always entwined. Mm-hmm. If you feel guilt, you're also someone who's blaming, blaming yourself, blaming other people. And what happens over the collection is I think you release the impulse to do both, to blame people, okay. to point fingers, to say mm-hmm. Jimmy Cross was responsible, and also to feel guilty yourself. And mm-hmm. instead, just to let go, process, and realize that the past is the past, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah. we are all kind of like the village of Tanke. You know, we are all yeah, yeah. in the afterwards. Yeah, okay, good. Um, I, I want to just uh, get your thoughts on the last sentence of the, uh, of the story but um, before we end up. But are there other things that you wanted to get to that we, we haven't gotten to in this podcast? Well, first of all, I just want to say that uh, Martha just seems like yeah. the most wonderful person, <laughs> and I, you know, and I think she's done such ill service by <laughs> by um, by Jimmy's love, you know, and 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 again, like the village of Tan K, so much is said implicitly about the story that isn't being told. Yeah, okay. And we can never know that story. I mean, she's a bit like Ophelia in Hamlet, right, where we right. just we know we can't know the story, but the flickers we get of the story make us want to know more. Yeah. Of course, I love Virginia Woolf, so the fact that she likes Virginia <laughs> Woolf, you know, makes <laughs> yeah. her endlessly interesting to me. She respects and, Strasser, right? Yes, that's right. You <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know. Yeah. And, of course, you know, the relentless sexualization of her and all these kinds of things, yeah. I think, is... Which is very much tied to the masculinity. Yeah, the yeah, yeah, and yeah, all yeah. That. yeah. Yeah, and I just think at a certain point, you know, I mean, I, I, I found it uncomfortable at the beginning, and then the more it continued, the more I actually found it upsetting, you know? So, yeah, right. So I think... Right, I think, and the way know, he's using her... Yes, and, and exactly, you know? Yeah, yeah, and you want right. to have empathy for him because he has nothing in this yeah. situation, and he yeah. needs to feel loved and whatnot, right. and, and this so... Is, this is a, a, his way of coping, it's his and coping it's a very... Yeah, uncomfortable. Yes, kind of exactly. Way but the for, but for the narrative us. is going to give us empathy for him while at the same time giving us that distance and, and helping yeah. us realize. Look, again, this is only part of the story, you know. Right. So right. that's something you know. I just think. Um, yeah. Great. I, I'm, yeah, I'm really glad we we got to that. You got to that. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. All right. So the story ends right. The last the last line. Uh, carry on. Then they would saddle up and form into a column, and move out toward the villages west of Tonkay. So, you know, sort of the, given the title and given everything we've seen with Carrie, right, 
what what sort of weight does carry on carry if i can ask it that way yeah well it carries so much weight and there's just so many ways it's working i mean i mean first of all it's 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 working in in this perhaps like hopeful sense like you can you can carry this now you know you can yeah, you, you yeah. can you know you we've changed we've had this moment you know yeah, your yeah. burden has been lightened in some way it's going to work so on and so forth um, but it also has the opposite sense of almost resignation, the shrugging, uh-huh. the kind of tragic sense, almost like Schopenhauer, you know, uh-huh. carry on, carry yeah, on, yeah, you know, yeah. continuing to kind of kind of carry on in these ways. And we're just going to continue with all these objects that, you know, I mean, the sad thing about the way or that, a Beckett way, you know, call that carrying, call yes, that on. Yes, you know? exactly. Yeah, yes, yes. No, on, no, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 You know, uh-huh. um, because what happens, I think, is the objects become divested of meaning in this very tragic way individually, you know, because in the hands of the possessor, they mean so much yeah. because the, to the possessor, they're part of memory and life story and so on and so forth. But then, you know, Ted Lavender's dope gets taken up by everyone else and becomes a joke, you know, yeah, and it's no yeah, longer yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the lucky pebble gets just thrown. You know? yeah, I mean, right, I mean right. all these objects, you know, move out of the individual personal space and just become things that are carried, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that ending has that sense of neutrality about it, mm-hmm. where these are no longer personal objects, a kind of personal thing. Yeah. And it has that sense of of distance and moving, and then they would settle up into a column and move out towards the villages west of Tankei. It's so appropriate and sad and awful and beautiful that the last words are Tankei, exactly. right? Which right. is like yeah. the completely yeah. right. forgotten, effaced, you right. know. Right, but it also calls back. But it to, calls then back. They, then they burn yes. Tankei. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, and it reminds you yeah. that there was a Tankei. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's that same inside-outsideness, again, that we just get over the the, the story um, and it's just, I think, just elegantly, beautifully executed. It's yeah. such an interesting story because it seems so crass on so many levels. Uh-huh. Um, and it also seems so artless on so many levels, yeah. you know, almost intentionally yeah. so, like almost yeah. viciously. Yeah, so, the list. You know? uh, yes. the, 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 they carried this, they carried yes. this, they carried it. All right, come yes, on. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. you know. <laughs> right. And when you read it out loud, you really feel that because, you know, when you're reading it on the page, your yeah. eyes can kind of move faster across the list. Yeah. But on the page, it's like, and this, this, this. But, but, it, but it's very artful. It's so thoughtfully written and exactly. so thoughtfully constructed. Yeah. And again, this is this thing that I think is just extraordinary about powerful tragedies in general is, is the beauty is in the form, is mm. in the craft, is in the thought, is in yeah. the care. And that's yeah. what makes you believe through the author that there can be some sense or meaning or purpose found in war mm-hmm. and tragedy and suffering. And that's the final, I think, redemptive therapeutic move that yeah. the story makes is it makes you believe in something bigger. Yeah, good. Because of that kind of lurking narrative beauty. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Okay, Angus, well, thank you very much. Um, I'm sure our listeners will be greatly appreciative of everything you brought to the story. Um, So I'm just going to wind up and uh, say to our listeners that we welcome feedback on this podcast uh, via our Project Narrative Facebook page, or on Twitter, um, we are at PN Ohio State. And also, I want to um, talk about coming attraction uh, next month, our February podcast. Our guest will be Amy Schumann, and she plans to read some folk ballads, and perhaps we'll also make some reference to the podcast uh, that we did with Brian McHale. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>